Today we're going to deal with Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life from John 14. And let me review the last several chapters because in the last chapter, Jesus told them in John 13 he was going to go away. Finally, they get it. Jesus is going to die within a matter of days from when he said so. This is towards the end of the week. So, so there's some stress coming up in their lives. The, the, the master they've been following for three years is going to die. Then he drops the bomb on them that one of you will betray me, which, which blows them away. They all say, not me, not me, Lord. Even the, one who's, even the one who's planning to betray him said, not me, Lord. And then Peter said, I'll die with you. And what did Jesus say to him? You'll deny me three times, Peter. You're not going to die with me. And so that's created lots of anxiety and stress in the disciples at that moment. So with that in mind, I want us to look at the cause and cure for anxiety from John 14. I want to read verse 1. In light of those three things, Jesus has mentioned he's going to die. They finally understand it. There's a betrayer among them, and he has called out Peter in front of all of them. You're going to deny me. So imagine the anxiety in their lives. Jesus said this, John 14, when let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. So often in our Bibles, as I think you know this, I've said it before, that the chapters and verses were put in hundreds of years later, even thousand years later. So as John wrote this, he, he didn't go from thir verse 13, verse 38, start new, John 14, 1. It's one continuous story he's telling. So Jesus is letting them know, I just created stress in your life. You have anxiety. But let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Another translation, the NIV, 1984 edition, says, trust in God, trust also in me. We'll come back to that in a minute. But that word there, trouble, idea of hearts being troubled, it refers to an inward turmoil, being stirred up, unsettled, to be thrown into confusion. One, one um, lexicon, one dictionary says this, to cause acute emotional distress or turbulence, to cause great mental distress. So it's a word that describes um, how, how many of you this week have had a time of mental distress? So you get it. You get it. It's human. It's human. Let me ask you this question. When you're in that mental distress, whether you call it anxiety or stress, whatever you call it, is it sin? Ooh, not, not much talk back on that one. I've heard many times, if you're worried or stressful, you're sinning. And that's not scriptural. I want you to know that. This very word, that their hearts were troubled, this very word troubled that describes this emotional anxiety is used three times in the previous three chapters of Jesus. In John 11, Jesus is troubled at the death of Lazarus. In John 12, Jesus is troubled as he discusses his crucifixion. How, how do you think you would be if you're, in a couple days you were going to be nailed to a cross? A bit distressed? Remember, Jesus is human. He is divine, but he's human. In John 13, it says Jesus is just troubled. He's distressed when he mentions that Judas is going to betray him. Well, Jesus never sinned. So the man, Christ Jesus, the human being that is our Savior, he's God and man. You guys know our theology here. 
Being human means to have a distressed, anxious life. It's part of what life is in the, on this earth. What you do with that anxiety may lead to sin. But the fact alone that we live anxious lives, that just means we're human. In fact, I think right now we're in an age of anxiety. Think about half of you raised your hand a minute ago. And if you're like me, when someone's asked you to raise your hand, I won't do it, but I, would, I agree with it. So I kind of manipulate you and I won't participate. <laughs> think of the last couple years, the anxiety and anxiousness and the troubled hearts that COVID brought us. As we weren't certain what it was in the early days. Do you remember two years ago, I grew this because of COVID. Well, I shaved it off last night. Two, I expected to have it for three months. COVID will be over in three months. It's two years, so by shaving it off, I am declaring personally COVID's over. I realize I have no power or authority. It's about me. Nonetheless, last two years have been differing levels of anxiety, has it not, because of COVID? Stress for our kids in school? For, for going into a grocery store? I remember ordering a pizza down at, at Papa Murphy's in Carson City. And I walk in there, and I had my mask here. And this young lady rebukes me, pull it over your nose. I pulled it over my nose. I wanted the pizza, so I didn't say anything else. But I wanted to say something else. Um, so so um, I like to in introduce what I'm doing in our staff meeting every Wednesday. I, I bring some aspect of the sermon to my staff. And I said, okay, what, what are some areas of anxiety? And, um, and, and we have different age groups in our staff. And one of them was personal finances. Do they not bring anxiety? And then that as you get older into my generation, it's not just personal this week, but what about from 20 years when I don't earn an income? The anxiety of that. Um, relationships. From, from dating, if you're single, to marriage. In fact, there's this thing about, you know, I say that, that with great love comes great pain. And in, in marriage, that is a, I mean, I'm not mocking, it's the truth. The person I love most, my family, can create the most stress and anxiety in me. That's part of life. You political people, how about the upcoming elections? You a little stressed? Oh, no, that's good. I'm not hearing any feedback. You know what's got me the last 10 days? This war in Russia and Ukraine, it's, um, it's, it's bugging me like never before on so many levels that, that I read the news and then I'm ticked. Our health, we can go on and on. The news media purposely creates this anxiety keep us addicted. I want you to think about an addiction. Addiction is something you don't want. You know it's not good for you, but you keep going back to it. Why do I keep going back to the news to listen to their negative spin on the world that creates anxiety in me? I said, I'm not going to read that anymore. And what do I do the next morning? I turn on the news. See, see, they don't sell their products if you don't tune in. And we tune in to that which is negative. 
So our world is filled with distress and anxiety, and our hearts are troubled. Listen to Jesus in John 16, Elena just read it. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. That's the opposite of that troubled heart. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Trouble in the world is inevitable. We can't escape it. How do we rise above the stress and anxiety? Where are we to put our hope? And what does Jesus mean by, I have overcome the world? So the solution, according to Jesus, is in the next several verses. Remember, it says, let not your hearts be troubled, but believe in God, believe also in me. The concept of believe could also put the word trust. Now, believe and trust are synonyms in English. They're good translations for the Greek word. But I think trust is the better translation here. Because to believe something is, 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 is sometimes believe, all believe means is acknowledge that it's true. But it doesn't mean I'm standing on it as my hope. But when Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, trust in God, also trust in me. So what does that mean then, that I trust in him? I'm trusting in him that he has a purpose, that he has a plan. And let's look at his plan in verses 2 and 3. Remember, this, these verses, we take them out of context, or we read them in, in isolation, forgetting he's, he's addressing the idea that life is full of trouble. So look at Jesus, in light of your life being trouble, in light of your distress in your heart, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus here is saying, I'm going to go away, come back, and take you to be with me. Because in my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, if you're a King James reader, or if in your past you've read it, King James says there's many mansions in my Father's house. And so the King James in 1611 chose the word mansions. So today when we hear that, we kind of go, woo, part of my inheritance is a mansion. And how big is a mansion, by the way? Really big. I love that. It's very specific language, Michelle. Really big. You know, I have, I have four bedrooms, little tiny bedrooms. A mansion has at least 12. I have two, two and a half bathrooms. A mansion has 12 to match each bedroom. You know, so that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. You see, the word mansion in English in 1611 simply meant dwelling place. As language changes over the decades and centuries, it changes meaning. So now when it says many mansions, that feeds our individualistic, you know, um, American individualism that I get to be wealthy in heaven. As opposed to Jesus is talking about dwelling places within the Father's house. So we are now children of God. And we need to realize that, that today we're children of God and there's a day coming when we're all going to be gathered together in this one family in the Father's house. And that day is going to be an amazing day as we live together in God's house. I'll read to you a moment in Revelation 22 where it talks about the new Jerusalem, another image of us dwelling together with the Father in his world. And so that, that is Jesus' solution. So people, don't you understand Jesus saying to them, my Father has a plan. Trust in him. I'm part of that plan. Trust in me. All the distress in your life right now, talking to the disciples, 
the fact that I'm going to be dead in a couple of days. And you're going to be hopeless at that moment. Your world is going to fall apart. You're all going to abandon me. You're going to deal with your guilt. That one of you is going to betray me. And Peter specifically, you're going to be emotionally destroyed. Because you're going to deny that you even know me. When you claimed you would die for me. And the beauty of the Gospel of John is the last chapter of John, Jesus restores Peter. I can't wait to preach that chapter. That's talking disciples. What about us? All the distress in our life from the, the world, the wars, the disease, financial problems, all of it is temporal. And the solution is where is my ultimate hope? Is my ultimate hope in this life only? See, I have hope in this life for some things. We need to have hope in this life. We have reason to have hope in this life. But it must be held lightly. Because everything I hope for in this life can be taken away from me. I can't control it. But there's something that never can be taken away from me. And that is, Jesus is preparing a place for me and you in his Father's house. And I remember years ago, it was Keith Green. You remember Keith Green? He, I loved Keith Green. He really influenced my heart for Jesus. But he did a concert once where he talked about, um, he talked about, you know, if God created the earth in six days, and whatever your view of, of literal or not, just let that go for a minute. If God created the earth in six days, and he's been preparing a place for you for 2,000 years, how amazing is that going to be? Because it's not, and, and, and Pastor Dan Arena that I served with for 23 years, he said, you know, that day... New heavens and new earth is not your greatest imagination. It's God's greatest imagination. And that is going to be amazing. So that's my hope. And my secondary hopes in this life, we got, we got to have hopes, folks. We just can't wake up every day believing the world's going to end. There has to be some hope of something good in this life. But hold it loosely. Hold it loosely. But that day is coming. Justice will happen that day. True justice. Deliverance from temptation and sin. See, right now we've been delivered from the power of sin. It doesn't have power over me unless I give it to it. I've been delivered from the penalty of sin. So there's forgiveness today. But that day I'll be delivered from the presence of sin. It will be utterly gone. Jesus will restore all things and he'll wipe away every tear. Let me read to you Revelation 21. I said 22, but 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Do you know what the sea represents in Scripture? It represents chaos. So there's no sea in heaven. Because there's no chaos. It's now order. Whether it's figurative or literal, that's Jesus' point. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Again, is it literal? Is it figurative? You can argue about that. But this is the idea of the dwelling place of God. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And now verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither th thou shalt there be mourning, nor crying, 
nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What a glorious day that will be. So, COVID, finances, Russia invading Ukraine, and possibly escalating into something much larger. All things that are real, all things we have to deal with and live with, and all things that affect our lives. There's people in this room that I know who have lost loved ones to COVID. But all of that will be restored in that day. That's where our ultimate hope is to be. And that's Jesus points to his disciples. This week, your life is going to fall apart, disciples. But trust me, I have a plan. So what do we do in the meantime? Do we just live in anxiety and wait? Well, like I said, anxiousness is part of life. It's just, it is. Trouble is part of life. But how do I live in light of it? And I would say, this is not in this specific text, but what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Second, is like it? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we need to put our energy into. It sounds simple, but it's really huge. In fact, next week in John 15, um, we're going to talk about what it means to love God. Jesus talks about there. And he says, if you love me, you will obey me. So part of love is following through in obedience to our gracious Heavenly Father who has done everything for us. And that's, that's not easy to do in this anxious world. Sometimes disobedience might relieve the anxiety for a time, but not for long. Love your neighbor. Love them as you love yourself. There's a million opportunities for this in our world. You guys have been praying for Frank. He's doing phenomenal. He got removed from ICU. Now he's in a regular room, which was a huge step. So he's full of encouragement. So thank you for praying for him. Thank you for those of you who donated to them. Wendy's car bill for $5,000 turned out to be $9,000. And you guys were generous to help her with that. So, so keep doing those kind of things. Keep putting your focus on other people in their pain. Focus on other people in their stress and trouble in life because we're instruments of God in other people's lives. Next week, we have a Foster in the City opportunity. After this service next week, the people from Foster in the City did a presentation here um, about three weeks ago. They're coming to do their, their meeting where you can learn more about what it means to be a foster parent or help foster parents. Kent and Alyssa are going to do that. So they've come alongside someone else to take attention off your struggles. Let's put our attention on someone else's struggles and help them. Last week, Tina Fahad said... We need to take an offering for the people in Ukraine. I didn't know what to do with that. How do we take an offering to send to Ukraine? And then she did some research and it came back that one of the mission partners we have is Samaritan's Purse. And they are setting up locations in the countries everyone's fleeing to. 1.5 million people have fled to Poland, Hungary, Romania. And people like Samaritan's Purse, they're ministering to them. And they're going to do more. So, so that's an opportunity for you to, to, to say, you know what? I have extra. Even if I don't have extra, I'm going to give what I have to help other people who have nothing because they ran from war. That's something we can enter into their pain. In fact, Tina and, and Bev will be out there on the mission scheme. They'll be on the table out there to talk to you more about that. If you want to know, how can I help people there? Step into their world. 
into their anxiety and pain. We could go on and on with examples. I could pass the microphone around. You could all tell me someone in your world that's hurting that you are God's instrument to be with them to help them relieve their anxiety and pain. And, and I don't want it to be a psychological message, but sometimes when I'm looking only at my pain, that's all I see. I don't see your pain. But when I step into your world, then it kind of puts mine into perspective. And we realize we're a family. On that day, we're gonna live in the same house. Today we live in different houses, but we can enter into each other's worlds. You with me on this? So that's verses one through three. I wanna look at verses four through seven now, where Jesus brings to us this concept of exclusivity that the exclusivity of Jesus for salvation. So the context here, let your hearts be troubled, trust in me, trust in God, also trust in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but in the meantime, I want you to know how to get there. How do I get to that place? I want to read to you 14, chapter 14, verses four to seven. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, and Thomas is always a, a good question asker in the Gospel of John. He always asks what everyone's thinking. Thomas. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So we'll... That sets up another question I'll ask in a minute. I want to read to you what I wrote here. Jesus gives us an unambiguous declaration of the exclusivity of Christianity. Christianity at its core is not a system of belief. It's not simply propositional statements that you can say you believe. The Christian faith is fundamentally a person, Jesus Christ. And it is a relationship with him. Please listen again. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, Jesus says. Not, let me tell you the right doctrinal statement to believe, which I'm all for doctrinal statements. Let me tell you the right creed to follow. I'm all for creeds. Those flow from a person, Jesus Christ a person with whom we enter into a relationship when we come into salvation. And remember that, I always say these two things. Salvation is a journey and it's a relationship. It's a relationship you enter into that you know the living God. We'll see that in John 17. And then it's a journey of living your life, walking with him and becoming like him. So Jesus doesn't say, I know the way. I can tell you the truth. I can point you to life. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So let's look at those one at a time. Jesus is the way. He's going to prepare a place for us. And, and, and he says, and you know where I'm going. You know how to get there. Thomas says, no, I don't. How do I get there? It's the right question. And Jesus doesn't point to a road, doesn't point to a map. He points to himself. I am the way, Thomas. There's a common statement out there that all roads lead to Rome, okay? Which is an old statement when Rome was the center of the, of the known world. Well, that's also used to apply to salvation. 
all faiths lead to God. They all, as long as you're sincere, doesn't matter what you believe. If you're sincere in your faith, it, you're in. That's not what the Bible tells us. And this is hard in our pluralistic world. This is a very hard thing. And we, and we shouldn't be flippant about it. We shouldn't be arrogant about it. That's how sometimes we're seen when we say Jesus is the only way. You guys are arrogant to actually claim that. Because it's contrary to, to the common world view that all roads lead to God. So we have to learn how to express this to people without, without some level of, I figured it out, I hope you do. Because it's arrogance. But we have to project that Jesus is the only way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Jesus is the truth. John loves the word truth. It's cursed 26 times in the Gospel of John alone. In John 18, Jesus is talking with Pilate. He's not, he's not in a conversation. Jesus has been arrested and beaten, and he's standing before him. And Pilate's trying to let him off the hook. Pilate's trying to find a reason to let him go. And Jesus says, I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And what Pilate say? What is truth? What is truth? That's in John 18. We'll get there. There's a common retort today when I say, well, this is true. Oh, that's your truth. That's not my truth. You heard that before? And, and, and there's, a, there's a place where that might be true. And, and so, so, so there's a sense of, a sense of um, preferences. Like, do you prefer Italian food or Mexican food? Italian. Well, you guys are so misguided. Mexican. Oh, I love them both, but Italian wins every time. So who's speaking the truth here? The Italians or the Mexicans? It's preference. There's true preference here. In this case, you know, your taste buds decide what is true for you. And my taste buds decides what is true for me. But if we all go up on the roof up here and we stand there and we, say, and, we, and we say, jump off. What is your truth? Are you going to hit the ground or are you going to float up? It doesn't matter what your truth is. You're going to hit the ground. So there's certain things that are absolute truth that, that no one can test. Two plus two is five, always. Just trying to see if you're listening. Jesus is putting that he's the only way to the Father in the absolute truth department not in preference. And we have to learn how to, to, to grasp the privilege we have of him opening our eyes to see that and how to be his instruments in sharing that with other people. Jesus embodies all truth. I want you to think about this. He's the creator of the world. He tells us that in John chapter 1, where we started. Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us he holds all things together. So he sustains the world. Jesus is our providential God who makes sure the world doesn't implode. There's a day coming where it says that God will speak the word. And the heavens will melt like fire. The fire will melt the heavens. So he created it by his word. He holds it together by his word. And someday it's going to end by his word. So Jesus is the, the sustainer of all that is true in this world. And I believe this. 
you know, there's always this conflict between faith and science. And I would say to you, because Jesus is the creator, he's the key to the scientific world. That as we pursue truth through the sciences, that is the observation and the testing and the hypothesis, all the scientific method, knowing Jesus gives reason and purpose to that. It keeps you on track. It keeps you humble. He makes sense of the world. Truth about who God is, who you are, and what their future holds is the key to not letting your hearts be troubled. Truth about who God is. Is God good? Yes. Is God all-powerful? Yes. Does God have a plan? Yes. Okay. And who are you in that plan? You're an image bearer of him. All human beings are image bearers. And your eyes have been opened and you've run to Jesus and grabbed hold of him. And in light of that, whatever's going on in your world today, whatever stress and pain or, or carefree and pleasure in your life, you're in his hands. And you can trust him to get you through it. That's the key that if you, whatever future holds in this life, we can't control. But we know what the ultimate future is. Jesus is preparing a place for us. Jesus is the life. He's the way, the truth. He is the life. We talked about this in John 11. Jesus said there that I am the resurrection. This is Lazarus's gravesite. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he asked Martha, do you believe this? And that question is always put before us. Do we grasp that true life is in Jesus Christ? He doesn't only provide it, he is the life. The relationship. Truth, the way, truth, and the life. That's our savior. Exclusivity of Jesus to bring us to the Father. That's what he's claiming. Listen to Acts 4.12. This is Peter preaching. When people are challenging him about the gospel. And Peter says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's Peter's words, summarizing probably what he remembers Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So the idea of all roads lead to Rome, I, I reject. It's interesting, if you take the biggest world religions, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, when you have the adherence of those faith systems that are dedicated to those faith systems, none of them say all roads lead to Rome. It's particularly people who don't hold to a particular belief system that want to believe that. So, so understand that. But there's also a belief out there called universalism. And that is that because Jesus died, whether you believe in him or not doesn't matter, you will have eternal life because he's gonna save everybody. I like the idea a lot, I really do. I have a, a stepfather who raised me, to my knowledge, never came to faith in Jesus. And that hurts my heart. I, I'm hoping against hope that there's not something I don't know about his last days. The scriptures don't support universalism, that all people will be saved no matter what they believe. The scriptures just don't support it. This is why Paul is so zealous to take the gospel to whoever he can. 
He wants to get over to Spain after he visits Rome because no one's preached the gospel in Spain yet. And to him, Spain was the end of the world. He says in 1 Corinthians 9 that I do all things that I might save some. I've dedicated my life to this. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, not sit in your house because all nations are saved. So the scriptures don't support universalism. As much as, as, much as emotion, I like it to be true. It doesn't. And we need to learn what it means to love God with our heart, souls, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves and earn the right to tell them about Jesus. I had lunch with a guy on Saturday or Friday, I forget what it was, that comes to this church named Todd. And Todd says that sometimes we should keep quiet about believing in Jesus until we show him how we live. Live like you love Jesus, then tell him about your Jesus. But when we live like we don't love Jesus, then we start talking about Jesus, what are they going to do? Your Jesus is useless to me. A thought. The last point. Jesus is the unique revealer of the Father. So this is verses 8 through 11. And what I want to do in light of today's communion, I want to invite the worship team back up because I want to just use this to introduce communion. Um, in a moment, I'll invite the ushers up to serve. And during that time, the worship team is going to sing a beautiful song for us as we come up and get the elements. But I want you to listen to these words of Jesus in 8 through 11 as he's the unique reviewer because... Another question is asked, this time by Philip. Because verse 7 into it, from now on you know him and have seen him. Talk about God the Father. You have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Just like Thomas goes, we don't know the way. Philip says, where is the Father? I don't see him. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So this is a, a, a potentially confusing passage. This passage and many other passages were developed by the early Christians, from the apostles forward, and came up with the concept of the Trinity. There's one God, and that one God is eternally present as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, three persons. And so I don't have time today to unpack that, but Jesus is, is informing that belief system today in this passage. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. See, Jesus is the incarnation of the living God. And everything he did and said represents who his father is. And so if you want to know what God is like, the father, open your Bibles and devour the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll know who the father is. Because he is in the father and the father's in him. That's what he's saying to Thomas here. John 1.18 has started this off. John says, no one has ever seen God. The only God is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has ever physically seen the Father in his true essence. Anyone. Jesus has come to reveal him, and that's what the Gospel of John has taught us. So today, as we participate in the bread and the cup, here's what I want you to do in light of 
the invisible God has sent his image, Jesus Christ, to become human. That's from Colossians. To reveal who the Father is to you and me, and then to redeem us. The bread and the cup represent the body and blood of Jesus. His true humanity. Jesus became truly human so that we could get to know the Father. And he did it in a way, not just how he lived his life, but because sin separated us from the Father. A chasm so great I could not cross it with my own abilities. So Jesus died on the cross to close the gap so I could know the Father. God became human to redeem his image bearers and restore us back to full image bearers of God as brothers of Jesus Christ being conformed to his image. That's what I want you to think about today in communion. So as the ushers come forward, please, and hand out the elements, if you would, please come forward, grab the elements, and go back to your seat. We'll partake together after everyone has their elements. And... The worship team has blessed us with this song. So listen to the lyrics of this song. Mm -hmm. 